Since the beginning, God has wanted nothing but to walk with His children. But as we've discovered throughout our puzzled series, His children were really good at running away. In fact, they were so good at running that God wasn't a priority. Of course, men like Noah, Abraham, Moses, King David, and the prophet Isaiah, those men slowed down long enough to walk with Him. But not everyone did. So God, desperately wanting a relationship with His children, put together a plan. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. God's plan was a baby, and that baby would make all things broken whole again. And the light of the world would reign in justice and righteousness. And through that baby, Shalom will one day be restored. Well, good morning, friends. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. Well, welcome to part four of our teaching. Or I'm part four. Where have I been? Uh, this is part five of our teaching series, Puzzled, Piecing It All Together. We've been working our way through the Bible and trying to understand it from a 30,000 foot view. And last week, we ended up with finishing the Older Testament, finally getting to enter into the Newer Testament, looking at a guy by the name of Jesus, and it's going to be awesome. So turn to your neighbor and say, buckle up. Give me more of Jesus. Oh, we said buckle up louder than give me more of Jesus. Uh-oh. Well, hey, good morning, and just a reminder, next week we're going to wrap up this series, and this, you'll get this. Next week, an entire timeline of everything we've been going over with scripture references. So if you're a note taker again this morning, we're going to be all over the Newer Testament in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. But you will get this with all pictures and everything. Put it in your Bible. Take it home. This will be our gift to you next week as we wrap up our time together. We left off last week as finishing the Older Testament with this idea of all of a sudden after the prophets, after these people that God uses to be gap closers, these things that were, this is how people are living, this is how God wants you to live, and people speak into that gap, and so you got to bring that together. you got to start acting like Jesus. 400 years of what we know as the intertestamental period, the time between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, God is 400 years of silence. And last week we looked at an idea of like a theater or a play and the curtains in between a scene, the curtains close and there's stage hands making everything and changing things and that's what it was like. God was getting ready for something big and it's going to come in Bethlehem. Here's what one of the writers says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the, what's these three words? The fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is Paul who hated Christians, hated Jesus, became a Jesus follower. He persecuted them. He voted for their killings. And he writes to a church in the region of Galatia saying, when the fullness of time had come, 
What was that fullness of time? In two weeks, we're going to launch a two-week Christmas series titled In the Fullness of Time, and we're going to dig more into what is going on at the birth of Jesus. Why did Paul say in the fullness of time? What was happening? Why would Paul say that? And we're going to explore it, and it's going to be awesome. Turn to someone and say, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, giddy up, right? And we're going to look at that. But all of a sudden, after 400 years of nothing, God sends Jesus in a little town of Bethlehem, about six miles south of Jerusalem, where the temple was, where they went and worshiped, a little town in about five or six BC is the birth of Jesus. Yes, that messes with some of our calendars because we always thought, wait, I thought Jesus was born in year zero. No, he wasn't. Um, How do we know that? Well, Matthew writes about in the birth narrative of Jesus that there's a guy on the throne that's governing the region where Jesus was born by the name of Herod the Great. Historians have told us Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C., Therefore, Jesus had to have been born of either 4 B.C. or earlier, and we know that Herod the Great will send a decree to say, I need to kill all the baby Jew boys who are two years and younger because Herod the Great is known as the king of the Jews, and now Jesus, the Magi, come and say, Herod the Great, where's the king of the Jews? And this ticks off Herod the Great. So that's how we know there's at least two years, if not less, after 4 B.C. So most historians say 5 or 6 B.C. is the birth of Jesus. And hate to break it to you, it isn't December 25th. Everyone, let's just say, aww. You ruined Christmas now, Ryan. Thanks. Hey, it's probably somewhere in summer. Maybe June, July. June, July. uh, um, Or maybe even as early as May is actually... But December 25th is when we celebrate the birth of our Savior. But all of a sudden, we know the fullness of time. Jesus comes on the scene, and we don't know much about his, We have a little bit about his birth. We know King Herod's on the throne, and he sends that decree that we just talked about to kill all the young boys two years or younger. And so through a dream, Mary and Joseph, the teenage couple that have Jesus, the Son of God, they flee to Egypt. So they don't have to deal with that decree. And what do we know about Egypt? It's the land of slavery, right? God tells his people, don't go back there. And all of a sudden now, his son Jesus goes there. And it's through Egypt, he's going to leave Egypt, go back into the land of Israel, and complete his entire Jesus movement and start his ministry. We don't know much what happened with the early years of Jesus. We only have one Uh, one story when Jesus was the age of 12, they were in the temple, they were worshiping and doing all that great stuff. And then the parents, Mary and Joseph leave and they left 12 year old Jesus at the temple. All right. You look at that and go great parenting skills right there. All right. But granted, they traveled in caravans. There was probably 60, 70, 80 people with Mary and Joseph relatives. And they think Jesus is somewhere in us traveling and Well, he's back in the temple, right? So we have that quick story. But all of a sudden now, about about 30-ish, Jesus begins his ministry. 
The Son of God begins his ministry. And there's a guy before him by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the contemporary of Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's preparing hearts to get ready because Jesus is on the world scene now. And this is what Matthew writes to us in Matthew chapter 3 about John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of God, what friends? Has come near. This is John's message. There is something that's happening. And this idea of come near means joining together, present, moving forward. And John the Baptist is saying, get ready, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Something is about to happen. And it's this message that eventually will get John thrown into prison. But before that time, Jesus is now on the scene with John the Baptist, and Jesus goes up to this guy and says, I need to get baptized. And he's like, what? Wait, you're the Messiah. You're Jesus. You should baptize me. He's like, no, I got to do it. And so Jesus goes into the Jordan River, gets dunked, comes back up, and it said the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And the heavens said, this is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. And it sounded exactly like that. <laughs> and the pres can you imagine being there and Jesus getting baptized and you hear that and you're probably like, kind of creepy, you know, like you don't know what's going on. But there's only one other time that the heavens open up and says the exact same thing. It's at Jesus' transfiguration. Read it on your own. Find it in either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are the four gospel writers in the Newer Testament. The Newer Testament all talks about Jesus. We call them the gospel writers. Gospel meaning good news. It's all about who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John write the biography of Jesus. And on the scene, John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Son of God to do his ministry. And this is all of a sudden, Jesus comes and Jesus will make his way out of here to the region of Galilee the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus will make his home base for his ministry. It's a beautiful place. If you're able to travel with me in about a year and a half, we'll take a trip to Israel. For some of you that are interested in that, we'll be able to stay at the Sea of Galilee. You'll be able to swim in the Sea of Galilee. It's fresh water. It's a lake, but it's really warm and feels really cool. All right? You'll get to do that. But Jesus makes his home base there, and Jesus begins his ministry. No, let me say this before Jesus' ministry. This is so cool. So the nation of Israel was 400 years in, in Egypt in slavery, and God delivered them. And we've, we've talked about this if you've been along with our series, and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And we know that there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? We got those related together. Jesus goes as a baby into Egypt. He gets out of Egypt, and he begins his, uh, right before he begins his ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, reflecting the 40 years of wandering by the Israelites. And then Jesus has how many disciples? 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus' life is written on the canvas of the Israelite story. What Israel, what Israel got wrong, Jesus will get right. That's awesome. 
Turn to someone and say, it's awesome. Even if you don't believe it, don't lie in church though, but it's still awesome, okay? It's awesome. And so Jesus now, after being tempted, makes his way up to the Sea of Galilee. And and, uh, we get this awesome thing in Matthew. He begins his ministry about the age of 30. And this is the first words that Jesus says. Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, referring to when Jesus goes up to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has what, friends? Didn't we just see this with John the Baptist who was preparing the way? John the Baptist wrote, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And now Jesus is on the scene. He says, hey, repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. I am bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. The son of God, I'm going to change lives. And this is the way Jesus begins his ministry. The repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, Mark, when he writes about the life of Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, Mark immediately begins, I want to tell you something about the life of Jesus, and immediately begins with this statement. Jesus enters the scene basically saying, I'm the kingdom of heaven, it's coming, something radically is going to change. And you may be, I got to clarify something really quick. We read kingdom of heaven. Matthew is writing this. But oftentimes we see the kingdom of God. You look at a different, you look at Luke or um, Mark, they write kingdom of God. What's the difference? Nothing. It's just who the writer is. Okay? Matthew's audience, who's writing this, Matthew, Matthew's audience are Jews who are believing in Jesus. Okay? The Jews do not speak the name of God. It's too sacred and holy. So when Matthew's writing, he calls it the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God. The other gospel writers aren't writing to Jews. They're writing to Rome. They're writing to Gentiles. Luke writes to a specific person, and he says the kingdom of God because he's not speaking to Jewish people. Does that make sense? Same thing, okay? It's just we got to know why does Matthew say kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God? That's the difference. So Jesus is on the scene, and Jesus is going to leave here and go to his hometown. And he's going to speak into his hometown, and he's going to speak about who he is and what he's going to do with this kingdom of heaven. And what's awesome is, again, if you come to Israel, we get to go to one of the synagogues, the churches of the time, and stand on one of the plates where Jesus probably would have stood and read a scroll. So awesome. Say it's awesome. You got to go to Israel. Okay, here we go. In Matthew. I'm sorry, it's in Luke 4. This is Jesus reading now in his hometown synagogue or church about who he is and what he's doing. And he's reading from a scroll of Isaiah. And he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. If you've been with us this entire series, think of righteousness and justice this entire time. You're going to hear about the least of these, the oppressed, and how Jesus is going to say, I'm here for them. Righteousness and justice. Here we go. Next verse, he says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
He's like, the kingdom of heaven is here. I'm bringing it. I'm here to set the oppressed free. I'm here to make the prisoners run free. I'm here to do that. That is my purpose. 400 years of nothing from God, and here I am. And I'm going to do something amazing. But then you sit back and you sit there and go, what exactly is the kingdom of God? What exactly is this kingdom of heaven that Jesus says, hey, repent, it's here. Come to set the oppressed free, to set the prisoners free. That's why I'm here. And in fact, in his own hometown, they want to throw him off the cliff and kill him. Like, great homecoming, Jesus, right? (laughs) It's like, oh man, what is the kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is going to speak onto that. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, first book in the Newer Testament. You just got to turn about two-thirds of your way into the Bible. You're going to find those four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew chapter 13 is where Jesus is going to finally speak. Hey, repent. The kingdom of God is here. I'm coming, I'm going to set the oppressed free, but i got to describe to everyone what I'm about, what this kingdom thing is. And he's going to speak in a big way. He's going to speak in a way that's probably shocking to his audience as well as us. And it begins this way in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus speaking, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. And read this last, if we read this last, think of justice and righteousness, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. In other words, to give rest. But you sit back and you think of a kingdom, like kingdom, power, um, empire, ruling with an iron fist, dominance, strength. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. God, I think your kingdom should be like a hammer. There's power here, right? I want to know when your kingdom's in my life. I want to hear your strength. I want to hear and know you are there with me, fighting my battles right along. I want to hear your awareness in my life. God, your kingdom should be like a hammer. And Jesus says, no. My kingdom's not like this. My kingdom's like a mustard seed. It's about 500 mustard seeds, mustard seeds there. Jesus says, that's, that's my kingdom. That's what I'm bringing to earth. You know, there are, it takes 21,000 mustard seeds to make one ounce of mustard. My mentor had been into Israel several times. And on his way back from one of his trips, he collected rocks and other things that are important to him that he ran across in his teachings over there, and just memorabilia, so to speak. Because rocks are the easiest thing to just take home, because it's free, right? You don't have to pay for it. And he was out, and 
he took a little glass vial jar and was by the Jordan River where a mustard plant was. And he took home mustard seeds. So he left Tel Aviv, Israel, flew over to Istanbul, Turkey, then Istanbul, Turkey, into Chicago O'Hare International Airport. If you have been overseas in another country, you know that you have to go through customs. And you have to fill out this little thing to say, what, what are you bringing? Are you bringing anything from another country in? And you have to check if you have plants or seeds from another country. So he had to mark, I have seeds from another country. And so TSA grabbed him and said, hey, we need to question you and see what are you bringing into the United States. So he went over to the side and showed him all the rocks that he was getting in Israel and showed him the vial of mustard seeds. And he's telling him all the cool stuff that he has. And the TSA agent said, I'll let all these rocks through, but not the mustard seeds. My mother says, but of everything, I, I want these. See, I'm a pastor. I go around and do teachings, and I want visuals, and I want these mustard seeds from Israel. Can I please take some rocks? Let me have the mustard seeds. And the TSA agent responds, I know something about mustard seeds from Israel. My mentor says, well, what's that? And the TSA agent responds, when this gets into the ground, there's nothing that can stop it from growing. My mentor's like, that's why I want it. That's the kingdom of God in our lives. It, when it gets planted, it grows, and there's nothing that can stop it. And it goes and goes and goes. And Jesus is saying, No, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. But it's not like this. Because this you can just throw away, this can just be gone in a fire. But my kingdom, when it gets planted, nothing can stop it. That's awesome. It's the power of a mustard seed. But God, we want power. We want to hear that you're there. No, 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 no. It's like a mustard seed. It's small, but can't be stopped. And Jesus continues his ministry for the next three, three and a half years of going around saying the kingdom of God is here. I came to set the oppressed free. Let this kingdom just go. And we know eventually Jesus will be crucified. He'll be crucified because of the way he lived his life. See, everyone wanted this Messiah, this king, to deliver them from Rome. Rome is ruling them. They think their Messiah, their king, will come with dominance and get Rome off the map so they can live in freedom. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I didn't come to set up that kingdom. I come up to set this kingdom, a kingdom that will change lives and change hearts, not to overthrow a political system. And eventually, Jesus will go to the cross. It's what led him there. But we can't miss what's between Jesus' birth and what's between Jesus' death. Because as followers of Jesus, we like those two dates. 
right? We have holidays around them. We have Christmas to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We have Easter to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. But don't miss what happens between the two. Because if Jesus' life was nothing, if Jesus' only purpose was to die on the cross, Jesus could have just swam in the Sea of Galilee the rest of his life and just wait until God said, hey, I need you to go to the cross now. Okay, and go. But instead, Jesus was constantly advancing God's kingdom between his birth and his death. If we can say it any other way, I would say this, that Jesus came to show us what it's like to partner with God. We cannot miss that point. So turn to someone and say, it's time to partner with God. Turn to your second choice and tell them it's time to partner with God. This is one of the things I always tell new believers who surrender their life to Jesus. Get into the life of Jesus. Read Mark. It's the shortest gospel. It'll get you through it. At least you know how to live like Jesus. Because Jesus came to show us what it's like to partner with your heavenly father. And Jesus set that example. And yes, Jesus will go to that cross, which is an instrument of torture in the Roman Empire. They used it to humiliate you. They put you on a major highway to say, don't threaten Rome or that will happen to you. He will eventually go to that thing. And it will radically change. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the tabernacle and the temple, and you had to sacrifice a perfect, unblemished lamb. Jesus would be that last perfect, unblemished lamb for the forgiveness of sins. It's why we don't sacrifice anymore. Jesus did it once and for all, and it never has to happen again. And you know what? When Jesus died... Remember we said that there was the veil and the table, table, or the um, Ark of the Covenant was here and the presence of God was there? Do you know when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain? It was torn. Meaning the presence of God left the temple and it's everywhere now. Jesus is, his presence isn't just within sanctuaries of churches. It's in coffee bars, it's in your office at work, it's in your neighborhoods, it's everywhere. The veil is torn. But don't miss Jesus' life. Because he set the example of what it's like to follow after our Heavenly Father. In fact, look at what the writer of Colossians said in the Newer Testament. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you what, friends? He made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemns us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God has a case against us because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but he says, I will put it to the cross. I send my son Jesus to be tortured for you to make you alive, to experience the kingdom of God in your life. It's taken all away. 
It's nothing you and I do to work to earn God's favor. It's already there. We just receive it. And Colossians chapter 1 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, referring to Jesus, and through him to reconcile himself, what? All things. Why all things? Because all shalom was shattered in the garden when Adam and Eve took of the fruit. It's not just good things. Jesus' life and purpose was to reconcile all things back to our Heavenly Father. There's a comma. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. Because the shalom, shalom was shattered in the garden. And God's saying, I'm making everything new again. Sin entered the garden. Death entered the garden because sin and death are linked. Remember, God says, don't disobey me. Or Adam, you will, death and sin are going to enter the story. And you don't want, death is not in my story. And they introduced because sin and death. And in the garden, it was a garden where Jesus rose and conquered what was broken. The shattered, broken, and God says, I've conquered sin and death in a garden. And while Adam and Eve disobeyed God, in the middle of the garden was that tree, and Adam and Eve was told, don't eat of this tree, and you disobeyed. Now God's saying, Jesus, I need you to obey me regarding the tree, the wood of the cross. I need you to go to it. I'm going to show a picture of a, of a cross. For some of us, we see we see this image and we think forgiveness. It's true. There is forgiveness because Jesus went to the cross for you, for me. He was the perfect lamb that died in our place. But you know, Jesus didn't go just to forgive you. The cross means so much more than forgiveness. The cross is a symbol to remember that Jesus does something for us. Those relationships that were broken in the garden are now restored and renewed here. That we can now enter into a relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator. We have now have that possible through the cross. That you and I don't have to walk around with pain and struggles in our lives anymore because the power of Jesus is present in our lives to defeat those things. And we you and I can relate to each other with grace and love and mercy because it's the power of Jesus in us when we say, I can't deal with this person. It's yes, I can because of God's grace and mercy in my life. I'm going to lean on you, God, to help me deal with this messy person. But it doesn't just do things for us, it does things in us. The cross completely changes us. There's one thing to get away of Jesus' life when he died on the cross for you, for me, for our friends and our classmates, for our coworkers and our neighbors. It's that God desires to put the broken pieces of you back together right now in this life. 
So many times we put our faith and trust into Jesus and we just say, I can't wait to get to heaven. We miss out on what God's doing right here, right now. And God is looking and says, I don't want you to remain broken. It wasn't God's plan. Brokenness happened because of disobedience, but God says, my cross is bigger than that. I want to put your broken pieces back together right here, right now. Your fractured relationships, your addictions and your pain, let me heal that and bring wholeness to you. And Jesus would die for that. He would die to restore everything that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus would conquer death. He would be risen again. And he showed up to his disciples for 40 more days. And the disciples say, Jesus, don't leave us again. Don't do this peekaboo trick again. We need you. And Jesus says, no, I have to go. Because there is one greater than me who's coming. And all of a sudden, we enter the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you have the early church and a thing called Pentecost. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells on believers. And they said they began to heal people and do miraculous things. And thousands of people were coming to know who this Jesus was. That this God desires to put the broken pieces of you back together right now in this life. And the Jesus movement is still alive 2,000 years later. The only movement that is still alive is the Jesus movement. All other movements fade and die, but not Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you have to wrestle with that right now. Why is this movement still alive? And there's so many of us who can testify to the power of Jesus in our lives. Jesus is a game changer. And for the first century Israelites, a lot of them did not see him as the Messiah. They just didn't get it. I hope we get it. I hope we get it. Can everyone just bow our heads and for many of us, we just know We just have a lot going on and we know there's areas of our lives that we just feel broken. And we just need God to speak into those areas. For others of us, it's like I've never even experienced this God. I have no idea what this looks like in my life. I want to give everyone a chance this morning just to surrender their life to Jesus. I'm going to tell you there's nothing like it in the world to follow your Savior who loves you so much. So we just pray this prayer silently in your heart. Repeat after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I confess to you I've done life my own way and I need you more than ever. I'm broken and my desire is to be made new. I believe in your son Jesus Christ went to the cross for me to pay my penalty of sin 
I believe he rose again and conquered death. And that he is alive. And this morning, I put my faith and trust into you, Jesus. Asking for your forgiveness of my sins. Asking you to make me new. Asking you to help me with your power in my life to beat my struggles and beat my pain and beat my addictions. I ask this morning you would set me free. And may I experience your kingdom right here, right now. All eyes still closed this morning. I want to give you a chance. Here at Radiant Life, we often say, a decision that you make, there's something powerful of just expressing an internal decision and expressing it externally. Say, yes, I have surrendered to Jesus. So on the count of three, I'm going to ask you just to shoot your hand up in the air, and we're just going to celebrate. And all eyes are closed. It's between you and God. So on the count of three, just shoot your hand up. Number one, know that God loves you so much. Number two, you are a made new child of your heavenly Father who loves you so much. Three, shoot your hand up if you said that prayer this morning. Amen. Yes, Father. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are alive, that in life we don't do life alone, but we know the resurrected King is resurrecting me, that there is power in your name. We thank you that you didn't leave us here just to say, good luck with life. I love you, but good luck. But you sent your son Jesus to say, no, I'm going to take your broken pieces and make you whole. And we thank you so much for that, God. You are a good, good father. And this morning we worship you. There's a party in heaven right now for lives who have surrendered to you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, everyone together said, amen. Can we just give God a hand this morning?